You're listening to Sports Content Strategy with Mr. Richard Clark. The chair roles and the non-exec roles get advertisers so many days a month, so many days a year. I think when I joined UK Athletics, they were looking at 25 to 30 days a year. It was three days a week. One of the great successes of British elite sport in recent years has clearly been lottery funding as distributed by UK Sport. But the downside of it can be that UK Sport is too prone to be a controlling big brother and and an interfering influence. The public will look at Jessica Ennis-Hill, they'll look at Mo Farah, and they'll say, wow, superstar, celebrity, wealthy, lots of adverts, Jess fronting Santander, selling shampoo, whatever it might be, clearly doing well financially. So that's what happens to an athlete. Whereas in practice, the vast, vast majority can barely make any money commercially because they are only famous for 15 minutes every four years. Hi there, welcome to Sports Content Strategy. My name is Richard Clark. My guest this time, Ed Warner, former chair of UK Athletics and current chair of GB Wheelchair Rugby. He's a sports leader with a long track record and also just started a blog, Sports Inc., in which he is putting the sporting cat among the pigeons, shall we say. As I said, my name is Richard Clark. I'm a sports consultant and lecturer and journalist. If you want to find out more about me, go to mrrichardclark.com or follow me at mrrichardclark on all social media. You can also follow Sports Content Strategy at sportscontentst on Twitter and sports content strategy on everything else. It's also well over a year now since I wrote my book on cricket, Last Wicket Stand, available on Amazon or on my website. That's gone down pretty well. I'm looking to write another one. Just mulling over that now. Anyway, without further ado, let's talk to Ed about UK athletics, how to govern a sport, how to run a sport. And my first question to him was, what does he do all day? And what's he most famous for? My name's Ed Warner. Uh, I don't know quite what I do all day. It's a mixture of things in the city and finance and quite a bit of sport. Currently on the sporting front, I chair Great Britain Wheelchair Rugby. So I'm still feeling rather overexcited about a gold medal at the Paralympics this summer. And I chair the charity at Crystal Palace Football Club, which happens to be the team I've supported since I was knee high to the proverbial. Uh, What am I famous for? I guess it's Um, being a rather gobby chair of UK Athletics for 11 years from uh, beginning of 2007 up to the World Athletics Championships in London in 2017, which I was also the chair of. Made a few enemies, um, poked a few people, but also presided over, to my mind, quite a golden era in uh, British athletics with uh, Super Saturday at London 2012, one of those highlights. And you said you were... rather gobby your own description there you you're also writing a rather gobby blog at, at the moment <laughs> which are certainly opinionated certainly opinionated so what's behind that because that's that's kind of what led to this um this you know, I, 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 I wrote a book which came out in 2018 so i was writing it in my final few months at uk athletics which is called sport inc and it's about the business of sport but it's aimed very much at a general sports fan rather than the professional who's immersed in the in the sports marketing um, events world and I've no idea whether it was successful or not people seem to like it got a couple of award nominations didn't actually win any uh, but scratched an itch for me and I I was thinking about whether to write a follow-up would have been largely on football and 
taking a little bit of advice, talking to some agents, talking to some editors, I actually thought that writing frequently would be more rewarding emotionally for me than squirreling myself away for a few months and, and, and churning out another book, which yeah, may or may not go down well, might be forgotten in five minutes. So again, uh, yeah, Sport Inc., you'll find it on the Substack platform, um, is my excuse to get things off my chest, be a bit noisy, talk about the world of sport with a largely UK focus, but not entirely, again, aimed at a the general sports fan, but with a bit of crossover to people who are in the industry. And if I look at the readership, it is sort of 50-50 people who have come across me or I've come across them who happen to like their sport and the other 50% are those who work full time in the in the sports industry in, in all sorts of different walks. And I'm, I'm trying to talk to that crossover audience and open up the world of sport to those who watch it but wonder what goes on behind the scenes and in talking to those who are behind the scenes to provoke them to reflect on why they do what they do, how they do it, and how things might be done better or different. So that sounds very worthy, but it's what sort of gets me up and at the laptop to write once a week on the world of sport. I'll put all the links in the show notes. Don't worry about that. So you'll be able to, to reach a new audience, I hope. But what I wanted to talk to you about, Ed, was you run sports. Okay, You, you ran UK Athletics, and, and now you're running uh, wheelchair basketball. And you've had a little stint at British basketball, for example. So what qualities do you need to run a sport as a leader and what do you need in your executive team? Um, it's a really good question because in the time since I left UK Athletics and, and the chief executive, Neil Stavos, and I were there for the same decade-long stint, um, there's been a revolving door at that organisation. They've been through... Um, I think four chief executives um, now looking, well, they're now on an interim. Um, they've been through three chairs, they're into their fourth. So their averaging tenure is, is under a year for each of those two major roles. And, and yet I stuck it for a decade and, and so did Niels. And I think the answer for me is, um, it's a mix of things. Resilience is an obvious thing to say, but more importantly, it's, an ability to be a bit of an everyman or an every person and able to engage with uh, people in all different spheres within the sport, many of whom are volunteers. Um, some of them will be former athletes. Many will be actually making their living from the sport right now. And then you've got the whole international dimension too. So it's a, it's a very wide spectrum. And it's quite easy to fall into the trap of your hiring into these roles to, 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 look for somebody who fits one of those or can deal with one of those spheres they might be an expert in marketing or they might have a great governance background but have they got the flexibility to to face up to all aspects of the sport and to be able to be a presence in the sport and an advocate for it and to be respected for caring about it even if the people who are dealing with you might not agree with everything you say and and when I look at those that have tried and failed, there's, there's, to me, there's often been a, an inflexibility or, or a sort of one-dimensionalness to them, which lets them down. They're, they're, these are really difficult jobs. Um, and I mean, they get advertised. The, the, the chair roles and the non-exec roles get advertised as so many days a month, so many days a year. I think when I joined UK Athletics, they were looking at 25 to 30 days a year. It was three days a week. 
not because I was a super enthusiast, although I was, who was making work for myself, but just that's what the job entailed. Um, and you have to be prepared to you know, give a lot to it for a lot of emotional reward, but maybe very little or no financial reward. And so many people look at these and underestimate the requirements. Um, and on the executive side, when you're looking for a chief executive, we just hired one at, at, at Great Britain Wheelchair Rugby. Fantastic guy, young guy um, in his 30s still called Jason Brisbane, who's a former American footballer, uh, a Brit, um, who, who went and made it with the San Diego Chargers, um, worked his way up in community sport, um, sport development in the UK. And, and we'd taken him on. And uh, I was speaking to his wife at a, a big celebration event we had for the, for the British gold medal um, last month. And she said, Jason's completely in love with this job. And that's what you need. You can't afford to be anything other than completely in love with the sport, in love with the role, because there's a lot of tough stuff goes with it. There's a lot of grind. There'll be a lot of people out for you because you don't agree with their view. And you have to have a, a sort of bounce back ability um, to use a sort of Ian Dowie phrase when he was manager at Crystal Palace. You're a Palace um, fan. I know that. I know you're a Palace fan. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, but, you know, I remember I remember Dowie. We had a successful spell under him. And, you know, he, he, he talked about bounce back ability. And it, it was a bit of a joke and, and you know, people have made something of that with him. But you need to be India rubber. You're going to get pushed out of shape. You've got to bounce back and be ready to go and, and with your glass half full with an appetite for the sport. And, and again, I, I see some chief executives, I won't name names, who, for whom it just looks like a bit like a job. And I think it has to be something of a, again, it sounds a bit high-minded, there has to be something of a calling about it because most of the people in the sport, forget the elite end, forget a British team, um, the vast majority of people you'll be dealing with in the sport are volunteers and they're giving their all for the love of the sport. And if they don't look at the chief executive who's the hired hand, if they don't look at the chair who's the volunteer um, at the helm and see the same passion for the sport, then relationships are, are, are broken from the start. And, and too often you look around and you see that that's the case. I'm sure you've looked at the operations of sports abroad uh, with other governing bodies. It strikes me there's a, still a little bit of a hangover from the sort of gentleman amateur uh, history that we have in the UK. In the sense, you've got a volunteer chairman. You have a load of volunteers under that. OK, you've got a professional CEO. But is, are there still hangovers in the way that we're, that we're set up? in that sense that, that it's a it's a duty it's a duty and it's going to be a certain type of person that goes into that specifically that chair role there, there, there is yeah there has to be that risk um partly it's how these roles get filled often they are entirely elected from within the membership of the sport sometimes it's a mixture of elected representatives choosing the chair alongside a funding body, a sporting the Nora UK sport. Very rarely are they open commercial recruitment processes. And I guess the, the right outcome is, is a blend of all of those things, but with enough of the open process, open-minded desire to bring in professionalism, albeit a professionalism that I said has to have a passion for the sport, uh, that lets some of those recruitment processes down. It's also not always helped by the government 
funding agencies here. And one of the great successes of British elite sport in recent years has clearly been lottery funding as distributed by UK sport. But the downside of it can be that UK sport is too prone to be a controlling big brother and, a, and an interfering influence. Um, the, the recently departed leadership team at UK Athletics, who all just left in a hurry, um, I, I wasn't there during their selection, but I'm told that UK sport played a very significant role in the choice of chief executive and the backing of the chair, neither of whom lasted long, nor did the performance director. And people in the sport up close to it would say the hand of UK sport was felt too heavily there and people from outside athletics were transplanted in, in the belief that what they knew from netball or football would serve them well in dealing with athletics. And, you know, athletics is just an incredibly complex sport, as many are, different disciplines. Um, just look at the range of athletes to make up a team from a, a hammer thrower to a sprinter. Um, and, a, and, a, and a lanky distance runner in the middle and think about cross-country road running mountain running um etc 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 and what it takes to corral a sport like that uh, is very different to what it takes to steward netball um, similarly i wouldn't be looking at the recruitment of a netball chief executive saying someone who's excelled in swimming athletics or cycling would be ideal there they might be you've got to be absolutely sure they can really get the sport. And, uh, it, and, and UK sport, I, I sometimes, I think, are slow to recognise or accept that and are too keen to push people who've succeeded elsewhere into round holes when they might actually be square pegs. And that's, to me, that's been one of the downsides of the systematic approach to funding elite sport in the UK but there's lots of upside, and I wouldn't want you to think that outweighs the upside. The outside, upside, I'll tell you, has been huge, um, but it doesn't mean that the UK sport way is always the right way. That segues nicely into funding, because, as you say, lottery funding has been a, a game changer um, for UK sport. There is always a criticism that some athletes almost treat lottery funding as the medal, as the and sometimes relax on the back of that or not relax or feel that they've made it because they're now effectively a professional athlete. But, but is there a need to think beyond that? Certainly in the modern world where funding is tight across uh, every aspect of society and given the commercial opportunities that something like the Olympics can give an athlete, do we need to think in a different way? And you made the point in one of your blogs about Beth Shriver, the, the, who won a BMX gold, a, a British uh, female uh, BMX racer. She was crowdfunded because they only were prepared to fund the, the, the male side of the sport. But she got herself funded through crowdfunding. And it strikes me that uh, some of these athletes are incredibly famous, the most famous people in the country for two weeks every four years. And sometimes that can't be leveraged from a commercial perspective, and I know there's statutes and reasons why it can't, certainly with the Olympics, but do we need to change that idea in our thinking around funding? I think, yes, you're right. And the, and the British wheelchair rugby gold this summer was on the back of no funding of right. Rio. And yeah, the team and the organisation galvanised themselves to, in many ways, sort of thumb their noses at UK sport and go out there and find 
philanthropic backers, which is what happened to get the team to Tokyo. And lo and behold, the team not only got to Tokyo in good shape, but in, as it turned out, world-beating, gold-medal-winning shape. But you can't do that every time. If you then said, okay, that was great, you're now not getting funding for Paris because you've proven you don't need it. You wouldn't have the same momentum or energy behind it. It was a sort of one-off. Um, yeah, just as that BMX racer, if you said, okay, well done, go again, crowdfunding, they deflate uh, because there is a system and, and why am I outside that system? I think one of, the, one of the things I have found in athletics over that time is the public will look at Jessica Ennis-Hill, they'll look at Mo Farah and they'll say, wow, superstar, celebrity, wealthy, lots of adverts, you know, Jess fronting Santander, selling shampoo, whatever it might be, clearly doing well financially. Um, so that's what happens to an athlete. Whereas in practice, the vast, vast majority can barely make any money commercially because they are only famous for 15 minutes every four years. And yeah, who can remember them? If you look back now at Tokyo, Tokyo Olympics, and you said to pick some sports fans off the street who watch lots of the Olympics and say to them, Tell me, tell me the medal win, British medal winners this summer at the Olympics. The average person would come up with three or four names, and yet there were lots of medal winners. So it's very, very hard to parlay that fleeting success in sometimes a relatively um, niche sport into a great commercial outcome. There's only going to be, you know, if I look back at this summer at the Olympics, Adam Peaty. Yeah, and who else? Well, it's all about Adam Peaty. And hats off to him and he's doing a fantastic job you know parlaying that amazing swimming ability into something commercially and hopefully a long-term financial stability for himself but the vast majority of people haven't got that chance so when you look at funding um i think there's a duty to spread it more widely um sometimes some of the athletes are funded too luxuriously for their genuine ability but sports have lobbied well on behalf of their teams and Maybe we need to be a bit tougher with that. Uh, but most importantly, uh, more has to be done to help athletes individually and collectively understand what this fleeting moment and this fleeting opportunity really is like, to be realistic about it, and to do what one can to, to equip them for a very long retirement from the sport. And the vast majority of this old football thing, yeah, retired footballers all end up running a pub or not. Um, not the case now, but it always used to be. And footballers of yesteryear look at today's Premier League stars and say, oh, it wasn't like that in my day. Well, that's the world for Olympians. So you don't want them all ending up running pubs. So what can you do to help tool them? They're not all going to be commentators or pundits because there's only so many slots um, available. Um, they need to do other things. They will have to do other things. And some of those might be sport-related things, some may not. I'd love to see more sport-related career opportunities created or signposted or maybe finding ways to skill the athletes to to grasp those opportunities i'd much rather in the world of sport in which i do move i bumped into many more former sports people because that would make me more comfortable about the funding system it wouldn't just be about winning a medal every four years it would be equipping people for life on the back of the platform that the olympics or paralympics gives them um, that, again that sounds quite idealistic but i think you have to have those ideals and ambitions otherwise all we'll do is obsess about where we are in the medal table every four years and ultimately they'll that will fail there'll be a point at which it's a disappointing olympics and paralympics and then we'll all beat ourselves up 
we had to look at it over a very long period of time, think about the, the people we're helping create, um, which makes us feel better about ourselves as a nation, not just that they win a medal for us on the back of our exchequer funding and lottery ticket buying, but also that they become great ambassadors for um, for sport and the benefits that sport can bring. And you create that, that virtuous circle, which ultimately that's what lottery funding is about, isn't it? It's to make us not only feel better about ourselves as a nation, but be physically and mentally better because there's a connectivity between elite success and participation and, and a healthier nation, which at the moment we haven't created this, you know, London 2012 didn't really provide that uplifting activity that we would all have loved. Um, it's not too late because we're still funding for Paris and Los Angeles. So how do we take that? How do we take the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham next year and really make a difference um, over the long term in, in kids' participation in sport and the healthiness of the nation? Well, this podcast is called Sports Content Strategy. I'd argue that one of the gaps is the narrative, is the story, is the build around the athletes, given that if you're playing Premier League football, the story is made for you because it's week on week. It starts in... August and it ends in May and the league table will help uh, create that ongoing narrative. There's a different story starting every Thursday and Friday and concluding every Sunday and Monday. And you don't have that if you're Johnny Brownlee. You don't have that if you're, if you're Sky, uh, uh, Sky Brown, I think it was. Forgetting the, the, the other BMX lady you, you, you talked yeah, yeah, about. Yeah. The athletes. But, the, but, but, you know, is there a gap there where, you know, content, narrative, uh, bringing that elite into that participation, that positive journey, trying to bring that together and trying to uh, traverse these fallow three years that, that often happen or two years or, or, whatever, or whatever it is and segueing in, into a, into a, a post-athlete career, um, career, as it were. You know, you're, you're absolutely right. And I, I think one of the problems is that the non-football sports um look at it look at football and think we have to have a story every thursday friday saturday sunday monday in the way that football has um and if we don't if we can't create that story for ourselves we fail you have to be realistic um there are lots of big sports who don't have that airtime as frequently as football there is only one football um let's think rugby league for example yeah a big professional sport albeit it's got its challenges at the moment it hasn't got exactly the same narrative so if you're gymnastics if you're athletics uh, if you're rowing you've got to set your ambitions at a realistic level um and create that narrative art and then stick to it and if you end up with only a small amount of column inches in the times the telegraph the guardian the mail it doesn't matter because your route to your audience is going to be digital it's going to be social and it's not going to be in the old mainstream media. If I had a pound for every time a sports or a sports person had moaned about the number of pages in a daily newspaper devoted to football and how they can't find a report on their world championships that happened over the weekend, I'd be a very wealthy man. Um, that ship has sailed. It's now about finding your own routes to market. And we, we're doing a lot of this in wheelchair rugby at the moment. On the back of that gold medal, we're thinking about what events can we host? I can't tell you which one we are going to host. We've got a big international event we've, we've won the rights to, which will be announced in later this month. Um, we've got our own Quad Nations event, which we have in the UK every year. Um, next year, there's a European and World Championship. So we've got stakes in the ground and 
we're thinking very hard about how we ensure that as we approach each of those, um, that we get media coverage and that the public is reminded of this year's gold medal, which will then, and how much they enjoyed wheelchair rugby, which will take them to that next event, which isn't a Paralympics, but it's next one up is a, is a European Championships in Paris, and take them on to the next one, which will be our own event um, later in the year. And on to that, there's a World Championships in Denmark next year. And, and how can we remind people that it's the same team, same athletes, the ones that thrilled them? And I think there's ways we can do that. What I'm not going to hope for is a page in each of the broadsheets every day in the week leading up to those events. We got that in the summer in Tokyo, but that is once every four years. So we'll, we'll calibrate our expectations, but we then need to make sure we deliver them. And I think there's something quite powerful in focus and really understanding what your audience might be and what they want to hear from you. and then hitting those targets. And too often you get this sort of scattergun approach. And I'm not as interested in eyeballs as having the right eyeballs, for example. Can be done. And we're also talking to potential corporate partners that will help us get there. And um, again, I think sports often chase the dollar rather than the right sort of dollar. And for me, going to market, it's easy in a disability sport in a way because you know you've got a massive CSR story to tell and you're going to engage with a certain type of business in a certain type of way. It is a bit harder in athletics because it's a bigger sport. It's a mass market. You're looking at B2C sponsors. In my day, it was very much a Beaver and Sainsbury's and Muller. Um, who is it now? These are sort of high street brands. Um, I don't need that in wheelchair rugby. I need something else. I need professional services firms. I need B2B businesses. I need people who are um, interested in, in their corporate client relations in their employee relations um, and so I'm activating something different um, but what it ultimately comes down to is having the right level of ambition being realistic and not just looking at Premier League football and saying oh, yeah why can't we got, get what they can get and I'm a massive football fan um, but I understand why it's different and I understand what it is that makes it different and I understand why you shouldn't just try and emulate it because you just never get there. Yeah, I, I entirely agree. And if you're a, I don't think any athletes go into a, a, athletics expecting to retire on footballers money. <laughs> you know, it's just yeah. a different thing. And also what's been, you know, you talked about footballers, the PFA used to do a, a publican scheme and they used to do a driving instructor scheme. That's why loads of footballers ended up as driving instructors or publicans. Well, now loads of footballers end up bankrupt you know, because they've actually had too, money, too much money and they've, they've mismanaged it. But, but, um, but what you talked about is I'm not after that many eyeballs, I'm after the right eyeballs. What you're talking about is being a strong niche, isn't it? You're, you're after depth rather than breadth. You're absolutely right. And it's it's the marriage of call it a triangle yeah you know, the, the product the sport the the sports people you've got to showcase um the right audience um those that are genuinely have a reason to engage with it and a corporate partner that gets that audience and gets your sport um and if it's, a, if it's a relatively small niche, but incredibly strong and goes very deep, that's brilliant. It's got durability. Yeah, it, it's got real staying power. Um, and look, again, I'm, I'm lucky in wheelchair rugby because it, it does speak to people um, very directly. And, you know, sort of visual 
understandable, violent contact sport for people with severe disability, overcoming um, incredible barriers physically, and those turn into practical barriers in life, um, and doing it in a way which, which is thrilling to watch. Um, not all disability sport is, is as exciting, um, and much as I love it. And in fact, many able-bodied sports aren't as thrilling and exciting, or they have a, a, an air to them of privilege, that whole thing about, you know, the sitting down sports, the white middle class, public school sports, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I can see why it's harder to package those. You know, rowing has a challenge. Um, rowing's big every four years um, because we either win lots of medals or like last year, we don't win lots of medals and there's a huge dust up between former rowers and current rowers and the chief executive changes and, and, and. Um, but we'll forget about it for three and three quarter years. And quite how you get people engaged with rowing in between, I don't know, because the instant reaction people will have in seeing rowing is thinking, oh, public school boys and women. And you, know, you have to have gone to you know, one of those big schools to have had a chance to be in a boat to have got there. Um, and, and a lot of sports have that challenge. Uh, triathlon, you mentioned earlier, you mentioned Johnny Brownlee. There's a sport which is crossing over now. Um, they are developing series which have got continuity to them, um, not only in the Olympic discipline, uh, but also longer thinking Ironman and so on. And that is a sport which, because there's mass participation wrapped around it, because a bit like the London, if I run the London Marathon, I can be in the same race. My first London Marathon I ran as a you know, Joe Jogger club runner, you know, Paula Radcliffe was at the sharp end breaking a world record. And yeah, that, there's an extra thrill that goes that. You can do the same at a triathlon event. So I think that's a sport which, and the Brownie brothers have, have led the way in, in making more of it than existed before their time. Um, and that feels very accessible. I, I was interested in British Equestrian, um, some of the success we had in the Olympics this summer, um, when you heard the backstories and when they won that team gold medal of the different members of the team, they weren't all privileged, um, classic, yeah, horsey types that the public might think about when they think about British Equestrian. And so there's a great opportunity if the British Equestrian Federation and its different member constituents can make something of it to, to sell the story of those people. But I don't think they made enough of that at the time. And when will their next opportunity come? Uh, so in a way, again, you've got to be looking ahead of time at that. So we, we did this in wheelchair rugby this summer. There was a lot of pre-publicity for our team going into Tokyo, you know, we haven't won a medal, we hadn't won a match at that point. Um, but we knew we had to create the platform on which, however the team performed, we then built our commercial proposition, which we're in the market with now. Um, but the groundwork for that was laid in all the sort of feature pieces in the week or two leading into Tokyo um, about individual members of the team, their backstory, some of which are, 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 um, are traumatic, some of them feel very heroic. Um, all of them have masses of human interest. Um, once the team's competed, it's in a way, it's almost too late. Um, I needed to know who they were going in so that whatever happened, win, win or lose coming out, um, that human interest story was furthered. And so I would say to you know, any sport going into Paris, which let's face it, is only two and a half years away, um, be thinking now about how you want to come out of those games. And you've got to be working up over the next couple of years, the visibility of your team, an understanding of your sport, so that 
when the games come, you, you, you really capitalize on it rather than scramble around and trying to do it on the hoof. It, the sudden realization, oh, you've won an unexpected medal. What, what am I doing about that? Um, and I, I don't think any of these sports um, need to be obscure, provided they've got realistic expectations for where they should sit in, in public understanding and awareness and then work very hard to, to connect their athletes to the general public and in particular mass participation uh, because all of these sports are stronger if there's an understanding of a mass of people in the general population that play that sport when they watch it at elite level. So badminton would be a really good example. You know, Britain's most played racket sport ahead of tennis. Um, if Britain does well in badminton, didn't win a medal this summer, won one in Rio, hopefully will win others in, in future. Um, there's a platform of people who want to watch that sport because they play it. The Yonex All England, which um, is the sort of Wimbledon of badminton, that uh, takes place every year, has got you know, really good attendance numbers outside of COVID because there's a, a pool of, of, of grassroots players of badminton that actually think, well, you know, I wouldn't mind seeing the best in the flesh. Uh, and that's, you know, that, that's a real asset for that sport, which, which others won't have. Just staying with the PR side, you mentioned a lot there, but the management of conflict, right? Because so many TV shows are built around conflict, whether it's Love Island or, or I'm a celebrity or whatever. And football, the football narrative is built on conflict, even though they're trying to hide it. And boxing is quite the opposite. They're trying to sell individual shows based on conflict. And they will sit there and absolutely slag each other off in a way you won't see in any other sport. And if you look at what F1's done recently, one of the reasons it's had a step change is it's got a rivalry. And, Br and British Athletics had a heyday with Cohen Ovet with that rivalry, which was also based on a bit of conflict because they were so, they were very different. And the feeling was they didn't like each other. And Verstappen and Hamilton have been, you know, we've been hearing them on the radios criticizing each other. So is there a sea change that needs to happen within? UK sport to be a little bit more, uh, I suppose, less buttoned down with regard to conflict, because actually conflict within a certain parameters sells. Yeah, I, I love a lot of that. And I've my daughter, who's 25, is, a, is, is one of those people who's entirely discovered Formula One through Drive to Survive, the Netflix series, and is now completely hooked to the extent to which she'll watch qualifying, she'll watch the races, She's following all the drivers on social media. Um, she's, not to put too fine a point on it, it's her sporting obsession and it's come from nowhere. Um, but I can see that it's being burnished right now by the personalities. And I think it's a real testament to Netflix and also F1 for being prepared to take that risk. And it's built up, hasn't it? I mean, series one, the top teams didn't really want to have anything to do with it. Now suddenly they realise they should do. And it's, it's even becomes a story that Verstappen won't do a one-to-one -one with Netflix because he thinks some of the conflict is confected. Um, you know, Frank Warren or Barry Hearn or Eddie Hearn would, would tip their hat to Netflix for that. And, and I would too. And I nothing gives sort of upset me more at UK Athletics when we were putting on our own Diamond League or Grand Prix events and a British athlete would pull out or not want to do yeah it might be an 8 1500 um, middle distance runner but they pick the one that gave them an easier ride and they would argue that it was all about their preparation for a major event or they that classic thing of 
you know, feeling a bit of a twinge going into a British Championship, which meant that you know, they were throwing the onus back on the selectors to pick them because they're great, rather than turning up, beating the competition, being first two through the tape and therefore being automatically selected because that's what the public wants. They want head-to-heads. Of course they do. And what is sport? Sport is, sport is theatre where you don't know how the script ends. And if it becomes theatre as we know it and it's a play you've seen three times and all you're looking for is just sort of how does that character get played by that actor? But I know that she's going to drink poison and die in the final scene. Um, you don't get that in sport. But if it becomes the superstar turns up and a bunch of patsies are running against them and they win by half a half a half a half a circuit of the track, ultimately the sport will wither. And um, making things meaningful, um, making sure there's unpredictability, uh, all of these things are critical in what is ultimately an entertainment business. And I, I, again, Football in the UK, sorry, football in England has achieved that um, because the leagues are so competitive and unpredictable. Um, in Scotland, clearly, uh, there isn't the same degree of tension, typically. Certainly, there wasn't for years when Rangers had that, that punishment would drop down the divisions and Celtic were romping home every year. And you see that in a lot of European football, don't you, where the crowds are not as great because actually there are only a couple of teams that really matter in Spain or a couple of teams that really matter in Italy. And is there really only one team that matters in France? Uh, we, we're lucky here. Um, we shouldn't forget that lesson when we look at our sports. Yeah, it's certainly compelling. You'd argue almost more importantly than the attendances, but in terms of the TV ratings and the ability for it to be the Premier League to be sold around the world is the fact that the bottom team can beat the top team it's much more likely to happen in, 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 in the Premier League than in any other of the major sports. It's a major thing. Sure, um, but but, but, but st- the crowds still have to be full because you want yep. to sell this product to Malaysia. You don't want Malaysian fans turning on and seeing a half-empty ground. Um, so the domestic fan is important, but part of, the, part of the appeal of English football is full stadium and that rocking atmosphere. And if you're on the outside looking in, particularly from overseas, you sort of, there's an element of wishing you were there imagining yourself in that position which is why you get football tourists you will get people coming over and their big dream is to go to Anfield or Old Trafford. Yeah I mean I've done I've done some international strategies for some football clubs and they all struggle to replicate the uh, spectacular that is created in the Premier League because you've got the the atmosphere, the intensity, the pace of the game as well, which is which is which is partly pushed on by the fans. Where I said it's more important is more financially important. Those overseas yeah. leagues are other 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 yeah, things no, that may have made the Premier League and the Premier League players rich. Um, yeah. Cricket, county cricket. Um, I wanted to talk about to you about county cricket because you wrote a blog. Um, you threw your hat in the ring to use a journalistic parlance for the ECB chair's job. You wrote your, your open application. Um, how did you sell yourself, Ed? Well, it was a bit cheeky of me. Um, just to give you the backstory. <laughs> it wasn't. Um, so it was when, fine. <laughs> okay, thank you. When, when, the, when, the, when the job last came up and Ian Watmore got it, I spoke to the headhunter, who I know very well, a couple of times. And he said to me, look, Ed, you're not what they're looking for. I'm going to be inundated with great candidates for this role. And so, okay, fair enough. Um, and I expected they'd pick someone who was steeped in cricket 
And as it was, they took someone who was steeped in football and I was steeped in athletics and sport more generally. And thought, well, hey, yeah, why couldn't I have been what they wanted? So it's come round again. Ian Wantmore only lasted 10 months or so. And I thought, well, if I, if I, whoever they use as a headhunter, I might get the same brush. Off, so I'll, I'll stick myself out there. So I wrote a slightly cheeky open letter, um, which is of all the newsletters I've written on Substack, this got by far and away the, the biggest readership and a lot of traction from within cricket because what I said was, you've got some incredible products. I was a skeptic about the 100 until I went to see uh, a day of the 100 at the Aegeus Bowl. I watched a, a men's match and, and preceded by a women's match. I sat there through both games. It's fantastically well presented, very exciting cricket. Test matches are test matches. They're wonderful. But the county game is being crushed. And I live in Sussex. And yeah, Hove is a lovely little ground, but it doesn't host internationals. There isn't a 100 franchise base there. Um, there's the haves and have-nots, because an hour away is the Aegeus Bowl, Hampshire. The 100 is there. It's an international venue. And the counties are really struggling. And county cricket is struggling. Um, the calendar is messed up, as we all know. And allegedly, what did ultimately for Ian Watmore was an inability to get on with the county. So I've spoken to some former county chairs. Um, I put myself about a little bit just to try and understand what it looks like through their perspective. You go back to what we said earlier, how do you succeed as a chair in these organizations? It's good. You've got to be able to be a bit of an everyman, be able to be a bit of a chameleon, not to be um, devious or um, to sort of play people, but just to understand them. What does it look, through, look like through the other person's lens? Um, have you looked down the other end of the telescope? And, and I think for me, this the cricket role isn't impossible. People are saying it is. Um, you've got some big beasts out there internationally in the IPL, obviously, but also a lot of the pundits here are, are, are high quality former players who've got a lot to say and quite rightly And Mike Atkin speaks huge sense. Um, and it'd be very easy for them to end up hiring someone for this role who they either think is Mr. Cricket, who's been around the county circuit for a long time, but won't bring, I think, what is needed from outside of the sport. But similarly, they could just go and hire another person from well outside cricket who comes in and gets crushed by the established entrenched views. So I would hope that my viewers, my position, my, my experience in athletics, my durability there, I lost it over a decade in difficult circumstances and ended up by hosting a hugely successful world championship, sold a million tickets. Um, will stand me in good stead to get into the ECB and try and begin to understand it from everyone's perspective to come up with the, the solutions that are um, at the very worst of the sort of least worst, but hopefully are over time really good for the sport and people buy into it. And that's what's been lacking in what is a fabulous sport um, with amazing product, but where that important linkage between the mass grassroots and the English team is increasingly weak. And by that, I mean the sort of non-test um, match international ground hosting counties who have been bought off with checks of just over a million quid to sort of turn a blind eye to the hundred. But um, this, this juggernaut could crush their core products. And a lot of county cricket fans are very disillusioned by that. I think they are, I know they are stalwarts. Um, I've come from a family where my brother and father are both diehard county cricket fans. I understand their love of the game and also their frustrations. And yes, somehow there has to be solutions here, which, which nurtures the county game, burnishes 
the England cricket product and doesn't leave the ECB behind in this sort of arms race with the IPL. I don't, it isn't impossible. It's a fantastic job. But again, go back to what we said earlier. This is not a 30 days a year job. This is a proper two, three, four day a week chair role in which one has to put a lot of other interests to one side and say, I'm going to do this for the good of the game. And again, that might sound a bit high and mighty, but it's what's required. I mean, obviously, I'm a huge cricket fan. I wrote a book on cricket last year and, and wrote uh, 8,000 words on the 100, which was, I tried to be balanced, but I'm, uh, I, I detest it um, for, for its um, nothing to do with the format, but it's, in my view, designed to reduce the number of first-class counties via, via stealth. And they're not yeah. being, they're not fronting up about that. Um, and yeah, there's a perfectly strong argument for reducing the amount of first class counties. But okay, let's do that in a planned way. And that's extreme, almost impossible to do, I would suggest. But I would rather them be honest about it rather than just slowly put their foot on the neck of six counties or, or eight counties or whatever it is. In my opinion, what you've got with what happened with Watmore, obviously there was NDAs on the counties. It was pushed through. It was bullied through. There's going to be revenge. <laughs> There's going to be comeback. Um, yeah. And and that sort of politicking is somewhat is something that you know that's that, as a as a voluntary chairman. That's why you're paid the big bucks. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 look, Richard, I don't disagree. Um, the, the, the genius thing in a, in a selfish Machiavellian way that the ECB has done is they've ensured they own the 100 lock, stock and barrel. Um, it's not even an IPL as yet where franchises are being sold at the moment. They own the whole thing. Um, but there's massive downside to that, as Ian Wattmore discovered, and the counties know. And that, that, the edges of that square had to be chipped off to make it a circle so that everybody feels encompassed within the sport and, and with that product. And, you know, I, again, I don't think it's impossible, but, you know, I want to see Sussex as a thriving county. I want to see lots of people going to home frequently, the place succeeding financially, and it being an integral part of the fabric of English cricket, um, not crushed by um, centralised products. How we get there, don't know, needs a lot more thought and work, but that is the challenge. Um, but I'll go back to what I said earlier. I went to see the 100 at the Aegeus. It was a great afternoon and evening out. So there's lots there to commend it. Um, but how does the whole of English cricket become a part of it is, is the $64,000 question, and it absolutely needs to be answered. Yeah, and I think... Yeah. We, and we, and we've yet to, we haven't, still don't have a calendar for next year which answers that. Um, the problems that exist for 2022 in you know, the, the meshing of the international game, the domestic county game, we can call it that, and the 100 um, still looks a mess. And, you know, I look at this whole, we could spend the whole hour here talking about that fifth test, England, India, and the IPL and what the real reasons for. But to me, again, from the outside, the decision to play the fifth test just looks wrong next year. Feels all wrong. You know, this was an incredible series, which was bubbling up to an amazing conclusion. And to say, oh, well, for commercial reasons, there's now going to be a conclusion to this, not even in the ground that it was originally scheduled to be at next year. It's just, it's grubby 
commercially for me um, in, a, in what is already a very crowded summer in which we're asking a hell of a lot of our English cricket, our international cricketers, as, as is every nation. But arguably, alongside India, we're asking more of ours than anybody else. And um, we've seen that with Ben Stokes taking time out. Um, it can't be for the good of the individual's concern. There must be, I don't want this to sound patronising, but there must be some duty of care to the people that are delivering the product and the success. Um, and, and I'm not sure that's been well enough taken care of um, to date. And just shoehorning another test in to satisfy commercial interest just doesn't feel right to me. And obviously, I don't want to go on about 100 because that's a rabbit hole we can go down. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, what I do want to talk about with cricket is it brings together a point you've made a couple of times. I haven't really explored it, is the link between elite and participation. Because in cricket, obviously, you had 2005. It comes off. Um, uh, it, it, it's not shown on terrestrial television anymore. Obviously, there was a lot of money which helped the game, central contracts, elite players got paid more however there is a direct downward line from that fantastic ashes summer 2005 it comes off channel 4's coverage and participation goes down significantly now something like the 100 it's been talked about and i think there is some evidence to support the fact that the hundreds happening in the summer holidays they're trying to link that with some of the all-stars schemes which is the ecb's um uh, youth development schemes. I think think they're very good. In fairness to the ECB, but that circle has to be square because there was another fantastic stat that came out. It's something like forty five percent of the county players who were born in England went to public school. So you know, and that and that's going to affect the roots of the game. People watching it, people interested in it. My son goes to the local comprehensive. You know, they're not. I was talking about Essex and Middlesex back in the day, and there were a few kids who were, ma who were massively into it. There's no kids that are into cricket, county cricket, anymore, on the evidence of my son and my daughter. Yeah, look, the, the, the two sports, that the big sports that I would worry about in kids' participation are rugby, and let's say rugby both codes, although I don't know rugby league that well, but certainly union and cricket. Um, for differing reasons, uh, although there are some common strands, it's tough on a sportsmaster or a sports department at a school to, to deal with cricket or rugby. Um, rugby's got significant physical jeopardy, um, and we can't shy away from that. Cricket has some of that too. Um, but the logistics of it are just immense, whereas... Yeah, playing a bit of five-a-side, seven-a-side, eleven-a-side football is a lot easier and, you know, physically less challenging for the kids. Um, yeah, doing a bit of netball for the for the women or the girls uh, again is easier to control in a school. Um, young girls, teenage girls these days, if you ask them what one sport they wanted to play, probably going to start to say football a lot more and are saying football a lot more, and and you're you're really up against that. The solution is unlikely to be in schools, unfortunately. I don't think you're going to turn that clock back. Um, so you absolutely need club, a club network that has some connection to schools and is prepared now and again to do taster sessions, um, to get up close to the sports departments and say, have you, got, have you spot some potentially talented kid? Can you send them our way? Certainly that's, that's what happens in athletics. I'm the only way 
you know, schools do athletics for five minutes in the summer. Um, they might sort of paint a, you know, a few lines on a on a grass field and you do the 100 meters and whatever, and they'll give you a shot put and you drop it on your toes and that's the extent of it. Um, but what your hope is that a sportsmaster that spots someone's got athletic ability will say, well, actually, young Johnny or, or his sister, you should go to the local club. I know the guy that runs the youth section there. Just go down there, try it out, because I can see you're quick, you're athletic, you're nimble. Um, and, 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 and so athletics builds on clubs. It doesn't build on schools. There's just such a short window in the summer. And rugby and cricket are absolutely going to have to take the same route if they're not doing so already. And you're right, um, there becomes a public school domination, which, which is clearly unhealthy and, and unhealthy on an, on an ethnic basis as well. So um, the England cricket team has got fantastic ethnic diversity, which does reflect our nation. Um, it also reflects a lot of Asian interest in the game across the world, and that's reflected in Asian communities here. Um, and they're finding their way directly into clubs. It's not through schools cricket. Um, and I'd hate to see us get to the point at which the ethnic diversity of this country, but also what is currently the case at those elite teams in those sports, somehow breaks down because of the weakness of, of grassroots club, cricket, rugby, whatever other sport for young people. Venture capital, uh, private yes. equity. Now, you know, we, we'll link this back to cricket because we've just seen two more... Um, IPL franchises sold. Uh, CVC has taken one of them. I think I'm right in saying. Obviously, yep. they've been involved in in rugby. Now I know that you're, you know, and there's talk about hundred franchises having uh, private equity involvement. Um, I know that you're obviously this is your your professional area as well. Uh, from 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 a, from a fan's perspective, I always worry that the two areas that they are emphasising. Are diametrically opposed to the way that fans look at sport because they're not because they're looking at financial return and they're looking at exit strategies over the longer or short term. Now I know that they're going to be investing. I know there's going to be innovation. I know they're going to drive it forward. I get all that, but they're still going to look for a financial return and a potential exit, be it in the mid mid or longer term. It's still going to be an exit, and that's what fans don't do. Thoughts on that? Yeah, I. I, I... Yeah, you're right. However, it depends what that private equity firm is investing in. Um, and, and, and it depends on the, the financial need of a governing body. So if you look at the ECB right now, it's not short of cash. Um, it's monetized 100 quite effectively, I think, year one. Um, but if they looked at that and said the only way um, they could take their product and that could be counter championship or it could be the hundred or anything in between and really grow it strengthen it uh, revolutionize its its presentation its reach was they needed outside funding um i would say i'd have no problem with that provided it was a minority stake the day that the ecb sells 51 percent of the hundred and therefore loses it control entirely of it uh, that's a slippery slope. Um, now it's fine in Formula One because you know, what is it? You know, it's it's a bunch of teams, isn't it? Um, it's not a. These are not. It's not grassroots sport. Um, rugby union, um, CBC buying stakes in you know, 
championships, Six Nations, whatever it might be, provided they're just stakes. And so what they bring to the party is galvanizing the governing body to be more ambitious, um, to try things. Um, as long as you've got the right partners and the right people at the table, there's, there's nothing wrong with that because where else otherwise will innovation, because it needs investment, where would it come from? Um, now, do I see the FA ever needing to sell a stake in the FA Cup to a third party? Well, absolutely shouldn't do. There's enough money in football for that not to be the case. Um, but you could look at something like the EFL. If the EFL were to find a, someone prepared to invest in those leagues and those leagues' products, including the Carabao Cup or whatever it's called these days, um, yeah, it wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing because that's a very financially strapped hierarchy of teams. And I guess the, the issue would be where the money went. If it all went on wage inflation for players, that would be a bad thing, because I think they're probably paid enough. Talk to anybody. I spoke to the director of a League One team the other day, and they'd gone up last year from League Two, and he couldn't believe the salary inflation. Um, that you know, Just naturally, that happens when you go from League Two to League One. It was, it was huge. And their crowds have gone up, but not enough to compensate for that. And so as long as the money didn't go to, to wage inflation, but genuinely went to the packaging showcasing of the sport, well, I think that can be fine. Um, now, what I said in one of the newsletters I wrote was World Athletics needs that injection of private equity funding because there's an international governing body that hasn't got much money and has got a product which is stale, um, doesn't have the, the narrative arc we were talking about earlier, but could have it in its Diamond League series, in its World Championship series, um, indoors and outdoors. Um, and I think that an injection of private equity money into that sport, because the governing body is on its uppers, could revolutionise it and wouldn't necessarily be to the detriment of fans um, or the sport. So yeah, it depends what you've got what you might need and that you go into it with the right ambitions and as a consequence are position yourself to find the right enlightened partners um but yeah be aware you're you are you're completely right you're dealing with people who ultimately need an exit because they have their own investors to service and that's what we've seen in f1 isn't it there was a change of hands from cbc to liberty media um so there was the cycle there, but as I said, F1's a, an unusual, an unusual asset because, yeah, it isn't rooted in a in a grassroots sport. Last one. We haven't really talked about the effect of COVID. I know you've, you've written some blogs on it, and I've heard your talks. You talk about it, um, but if you're in charge of a sport coming out of COVID, you know what would you? How would you be trying to? use the 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 problem and turn it into an opportunity of change because that's what you do as a as a, a as a leader of a sport you take opportunities to create change and covid is a problem but the flip side of that is an opportunity right build build back better what would you do what i think the first thing i would do and this requires a degree of bravery which most sports haven't demonstrated so far is to step right back and say, what are my assets really? What is my products? And when I've identified the ones which 
really are the backbone of the sport and resonate with fans and have commercial value, whether it's being capitalized on or not at the moment is, will depend. Um, and then I build a calendar for the sport that, that really maximizes those assets and is understandable, not too greedy, um, has the narrative art that's come up a few times in the last hour. And that might involve for some sports a complete reset of competition format, timings. And the reason I say most sports haven't done it is what they've done is they've worried about their commercial arrangements. So they've shoehorned a year and a half of missed competition into the future years. So athletics has got back to back to back next year. Um, it's got a world championships, a Commonwealth games and a European championships. Um, now for most of the world, actually that's not a problem because yeah, they're not in the Commonwealth and Europe, but Britain is. And so British athletes have got three opportunities to excel. And there's lots of head scratching. There's lots of lobbying by Birmingham 2022 to get athletes to compete there. Now that's all happened because they move, World Athletics moved the World Championship back a year from 21 to 22. Um, so you'll end up with a World Championship 22 and then another one in 23 and then into Paris in 24. Um, it's too crowded. Um, so I think there's an imperative to step right back and say, okay, you know, forget where we've been in the past. What, what's the right rhythm? Um, even to the extent of, you know, there's a lot of talk, as we know, about Football World Cup, would it go to uh, biannual from every four years? Um, and they're worried about the Olympics and then you'd end up with an Olympics and a World Football World Cup in the same year. Well, okay, well, why wouldn't one of them be in an odd year um, rather than always in even years? You know, could, could the Football World Cup become 23, 25, 27 if they wanted to go to every two years? Why does it have to be on the old cycle? Um, I think all sports to, to, to remember the less is more. Cricket all over again, you know, less is more, actually. Um, so let's have some clarity, continuity, and build everything out from there. And I think the public is smart and knows when it's being sold a pub, knows when it's being sold something that doesn't really matter and it's being dressed up as, a, as something they should care about. But actually, when they scratch the service, they realise they needn't care about it. And then you get it commercial embarrassment, you get into stadia, um, and you get fans carping quite rightly. So be clear, be brave, keep sport concise, and make sure that it's really relevant. And then you can devote all your time to, to building up to those moments um, that really matter and should matter. And we could all learn a lesson from boxing promoters, couldn't we, in that? Um, yeah, you listen to, <laughs> yeah, I've listened to um, Barry Hearn um, talk about what he did in darts and snooker and fishing as well as boxing and there's a hundred lessons in half an hour listening to that man which um, every sport would do well to to reflect on. He's been a previous guest on Sports Content Strategies, very interesting man. But Ed Warner, thank you very much. Not at all Richard. You can find Sports Content Strategy on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Go to sportscontentstrategy.com for more information and to sign up to the newsletter. Richard is at Mr. Richard Clark on all social media. Read his blog at mrrichardclark.com. Thank you.